looking at session number seven in our series of studies on the foundations of our faith. Last week, we looked at anthropology, the study of humans. This evening, we are looking at soteriology, which actually means salvation. You don't have to get too confused about the big words, but understand this evening we are looking at how does the Bible define salvation? What is salvation? What has been accomplished for us and, uh, through the salvation that God has given for us in Christ? Now, last week we looked at that creation of man, that man has been created in the image of God. And we also spoke about how that image has been marred because of sin. Sin entered into this world. And we ended last week with the understanding that man today is a sinner. And unless somebody is there to save him from his sin, he continues to be in that sinful state. Even a casual look at the world today will definitely help us to agree with this thought that man is sinful. You look at all that is happening in the world today, all the wars that are going on, all the immorality that is going on, you name it the vice, it is all because of man being essentially sinful. Now the Bible speaks about God's gracious plan to provide a solution to man's problem. And this solution to man's problem, we call it as salvation or soteriology. Again, that's what we are going to do this evening, study what salvation is all about. Number one, let's look at the meaning of the word salvation. The word salvation is the translation of the Greek word soteria, which is derived from the word soter, meaning savior. So when you're thinking about salvation, it basically means somebody has saved somebody, okay? Now, that's the understanding of salvation. Now, when you're thinking about salvation, it means to set free. It means to set free. Somebody has been caught up in something. Somebody in a, is in a pit, maybe, and somebody else walks in, goes down, picks that person up. So, we will say that that person was saved, okay? So, in order for salvation to occur, there should be two aspects. One, that something has to be saved, okay? Something has to be saved. Unless you are in a dilemma, unless you are in a pit, unless you think that, you know, you cannot really save yourself, then and then only you are looking for salvation. Then and then only you are looking for a savior. If a person today thinks, hey, he doesn't need God, he doesn't need a savior, he is essentially good, he is not bad, what will happen? He thinks he is good, so he thinks he doesn't really require a savior. <laughs> so this is why when you are thinking about salvation, the first important aspect is that, you know, only a sick person needs a doctor. Only a person who has committed a crime requires a lawyer. And only a drowning person needs a lifeguard. In other words, a person has to be in some grave trouble before he recognizes the need for a savior. Sad to say, a lot of people still think that they don't need a savior, that they don't need salvation, that they are essentially good, they can go by without God. 
But as long as they are living in that state, <coughs> they will never really be saved. Okay. Now, that's the first part of it, the need to be saved. Secondly, that there has to be somebody who is able to step in and do the saving. Okay. It is one thing to have a need, but if somebody is not able to save you, that's not salvation, isn't it? Now, so both these aspects are very, very important. And both these aspects you know, how you find its relevance or fulfillment when you think about Jesus, who is the source of our salvation. Jesus is the source of our salvation because he meets both the requirements. He meets both the requirements. That's the next slide, the source of our salvation. Two things we said, you know, first to be saved. Okay. So when you're thinking about man, man needs to be saved. No matter how hard he tries, he can never really succeed. Oftentimes I've given this you know, illustration of if this thumb is uh, man and this finger is God. Now, no matter how hard man tries to reach up to God, it is just not possible. But both these things will meet when God comes down and meets with man. And that is what salvation is all about. All your life, you can try pushing your thumb up to meet this finger. But no matter how hard you try, how long you try, you will never be able to. So un unless a person recognizes his desperate state that I cannot do without God, I'm steeped in sin, that's the first step in which salvation can be brought for him. Now, praise God that Jesus is the perfect Savior because not only is he able to save, you know, because Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 25 tells us, wherefore he is able also to save them to the uttermost, them, <coughs> them that come unto God by him. <coughs> so the scripture is telling us over here, he is able to save to the uttermost. What does that mean? <coughs> no matter how sinful a person is, no matter how far away from God he has gone, God is still able to save. <clears throat> also Jude verse 24 tells us, Now unto him who is able to keep you from falling. Jesus is able <coughs> to save us from the guttermost to the uttermost. Why? For us. We learned how he is the perfect man, perfect God, perfect mediator. Sacrifice of his sinless life has been accepted by God. As a result, he has become the perfect individual who can save us. If a person is lying in a pit you know, and he's saying, look, I want to come out of this well, this pit. Religions offer guidelines. Religions will say, hey, look, I'm throwing this rope down. Three, see if you can hold on to it and climb up. Or they may say, look at these other steps. You look at these steps and you may be able to climb up. But no matter how hard he tries, either the rope is too high or the steps are too high, he can never reach it. But Christianity is basically not rules and regulations. It's a person of Jesus who comes down into the well. He is able to save. He lifts us up from the well. Why? Because he is willing to save.
not only is he able to save, but he is willing to save us. Matthew chapter 8, verse 2 and 3 speaks about a leper who came up to him and worshipped him and said, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And what did Jesus do? He immediately stretched forth his hand and touched him and said, I will be thou clean. So not only is he able to save, he is also willing to save us. And this is the heart of God. Second Peter chapter 3 and verse 9 tells us, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, but is long-suffering to us, not willing that any should perish. That is his heart's desire, not willing that any should perish. He has done what needs to be done. He is able to save. He has become the perfect and a sacrifice, the perfect mediator. He steps into our point of need and says, I want to save you. I want to lift you up. But the question is, would man respond to that? There are so many people who have false hopes of salvation. This is what God has done for us. But there are people who are still thinking what they can do. Look at some of the things that people think that they can do. Some people think if I get a good education, then I'll become better. You know, It was D.L. Moody who said, if a person has been stealing nuts and bolts, and you give him an education, after he finishes his education, he will stop stealing nuts and bolts and he'll now start stealing whole cars. Education doesn't change a person. Education only can make a person smarter on how to do more wrong. That is why you have the hackers of today, isn't it? Hackers are not uh, dumb individuals. They are smart people. But education does not change an individual. A person can use the education for wrong as well. You know, also, you may think that because I'm going to church very regularly, I have done some good works, maybe. God is going to be happy with me. Or some people may say, oh, I was baptized as a child. Or I was confirmed as a, you know, older person. So because I've done these rituals, I am saved. Is that what salvation is all about? You know, others may think that, you know, I'm giving alms to the poor. I'm doing a lot of good deeds. So in the final run, when it comes to salvation, God will in a way, my good deeds and my bad deeds, I'm doing a lot of good deeds, so the bad deeds that I'm doing will be reduced. Now, that's not salvation. It's all that is works. You think what you can do will save you. But no matter how hard man tries, remember the illustration, he's just not sufficient. The Bible tells us all our righteousness, no matter whatever good we do, is like filthy rags before God. Sin is primarily missing the mark. God's standard is very high. If even if you miss that by 0.00001%, it is still sin. Also, some people think that because of who they are, you know, they will definitely be saved. Let's look at some of the things that people think that they are. Some people say, I'm sincerely doing these, these things every day. Especially during Lenten period, there are people who say, I'm sincerely keeping the fast. I'm sincerely, you know, doing all these penance. My sincerity will definitely save me. There are some people who also sincerely worship idols. And they think because they are sincerely doing something that is wrong, 
it will become right. Now, that does not work out that way, isn't it? You may sincerely think that by killing an individual, you're doing good, but that's killing is killing, isn't it? It's wrong. So, just because you sincerely believe something, that does not make it right, okay? Or you may look at your life, compare it with somebody else's life, and say, I'm better. I'm better than that guy. Look at that guy, what he is doing. But I'm way, way you know, better than him. So, as a result, I'm saved. No, no. It's hopes of salvation. It is not what you are doing. It is not what you think you are. It has to come to that first stage of saying, I give up, hands up. I cannot handle it. This is too much for me. The sin problem is great. I need somebody outside of me to help me. Now, what is the method of salvation? The threefold method of salvation, which the scripture says is the genuine method of salvation. The first one is that salvation is always by the shedding of blood. This is Old Testament, New Testament principle. When Old Testament was instituted, the sacrifices were instituted because without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness for sins. There's no remission of sins. So blood sacrifice was the pattern in the Old Testament, which was a type of Jesus becoming the New Testament perfect fulfillment of the Old Testament pattern. So the scripture is very clear that blood needs to be shed for salvation. You know, somebody has to pay the price. And Jesus paid the price with his own precious blood. So that's the second one. Salvation is always through Jesus. Why is it always through Jesus? Acts 4.12 tells us that there's no other name given under heaven whereby we must be saved. Why is there no other name? Because it was only Jesus who shed his blood for our sins. And third important aspect of <coughs> salvation is that it is always by grace. It is not that we have to become good, and then once we become good, then God will accept us. No, no. Salvation is not by works. It is by grace through faith. So blood has to be shed. Jesus shed his own blood for our salvation. So the work of salvation has been done. All that we need to do is to receive it by faith. And that's what grace is all about. Grace is basically acknowledging, Lord, I don't deserve this. I cannot do it on my own, but I thank you. You did it for me. I accept it as a gift. That's the threefold method of salvation. Now, remember, salvation doesn't come cheap. It is costly. It is costly. Costly for whom? Number one, for God, creation was easy. Isn't it? Because everything came through the spoken word. God said, let there be light, and there was light. Psalm 33 verse 6 says, by the word of the Lord were the, mount, were the heavens made, and all the host of them by the breath of his mouth. So creation was easy, was simple. He just spoke, and it all came into being. But when it came to salvation, salvation was very expensive, was very expensive. It came about through his own shed blood. So some people may say, 
Hey, look here, you're making things very easy, you know. You mean I don't have to do anything, you know. I have to do something for my salvation, isn't it? No, no. You know, the cost has been paid by somebody else. God has you covered. He has paid the cost. It is expensive. So as a result, don't take salvation cheap. You didn't pay the price. You don't have to pay the price. But somebody else has paid the price. A very costly price. So salvation has to be definitely appreciated. 1 Peter chapter 1 verses 18 and 19 says, For as much as you know that you were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Jesus. So this evening, thank God for salvation. Thank God that there is a Savior. Thank God that you don't have to do anything about it. But don't relax about it and say, okay, now I can do whatever I want to because my sins are forgiven. No, remember the cost. Remember the cost. It is a very costly salvation that God has given to us, his own shed blood. So let us never treat the cross lightly. Let us never treat the salvation that God has given to us, the gift that he has given to us very lightly. Okay, let me now go through some 13 words that are used about salvation. I will come across these words in scripture, maybe in conversations, in, uh, in uh, different uh, teachings. You know. So I put these 13 words together so that you understand these words in relationship with salvation. The first word is conversion. The first word is conversion. The Greek word which is translated conversion has reference to a twofold turning on the part of the individual. One is a turning from and the other is a turning to. And that is what conversion is all about. You're going in one direction. Now when it says you've got converted or you have been saved, it means now you have turned around. That's the first part of it. You have repented and you said, Lord, I was going in the wrong direction. That's the first part of it. The second part of it is now you're going in the right direction. It is important. Both those aspects are important. Remember, salvation is not just turning over a new leaf. Okay. Sometimes people think about this in a turning around as in a, in a, a new year decision or a, in a reformation that you have done, you know, some new resolutions that you have done. No, no. Conversion is something that God does in the heart of an individual, showing them their sin. So when they have been going in this direction, they recognize, hey, that is wrong. And they decide to turn around. God does it in different, different ways. Think, for example, Saul, who was a persecutor of the Christians. How did God convert him? Struck him with blindness on the way to Damascus. He recognized that what he was doing is wrong. He says, who are you, Lord? And the Lord responds and says, I'm Jesus, whom you are persecuting. There's a turnaround in his life. And after that encounter with the living, risen Lord, now, Paul doesn't go back you know, to Damascus to persecute the Christians, isn't it? Now, there's a changeover. Now, there's a desire to be baptized. There's a desire to study the word. There's a desire to live for him. And that is what conversion is. It is not something that you are doing, 
but it is something that God does in your life. And the outcome of that is you have been going in one direction. Now you say, hey, that was wrong. And you turn around. God is the one who gives you the strength to turn around and then go in the right direction to follow after God. And this comes about because of accepting that gift that God has given to us. And that is what the Bible calls as saving faith. Okay. Now, everybody has faith in God. Okay. If you ask anybody on the street, they say, yes, I believe in God. I have faith in God. Okay. But the biblical understanding of faith, which is called as a saving faith, is a faith that transforms you from inside out. It is not just from outside in. It is not just you turning over a new leaf, but God converts you from inside. The Bible says he takes away your heart of stone and gives you a heart of flesh so that you're no longer going in the opposite direction. You're going in the direction of God. The second word is substitution. Substitution. 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 18 speaks about for Christ also suffered for sins, the just for the unjust. The just for the unjust. Okay, that's the Old Testament understanding. When we are speaking about you know, uh, the Passover lamb, when you are speaking about the blood that was put on the doorpost, so the angel of death, when and, uh, uh, the angel of death came and saw that blood that was there on the doorpost, the scripture says the angel of death, passed over. So the blood that was put was the substitution so that the people inside the house do not die. You know? Now, in the New Testament, the shepherd dies for the sheep. In John chapter 10 and verse 11, the scripture says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. So we had to die. Somebody substituted for us and paid the penalty of death on the cross. And that's what salvation is. The third word that is used is reconciliation. Reconciliation. When you're thinking about reconciliation, you know, it means you have moved from a position of being an enemy to a position to be a friend. You didn't get along. Now you have joined hands together, shook hands together, and now you are friends. And that's what reconciliation is all about. Now, how does that work out in our, in our uh, relationship with God? We studied last time when man uh, was created, created in the image of God. Sin came into the picture. And remember, when God came to meet Adam and Eve, they hid themselves, you know, why did they hit themselves? Because they knew now there was a barrier that had come between God and them. Earlier, they could talk together, they could walk together. But now suddenly, because of sin, there's a barrier that has come in. Now, that is the scriptural understanding of sin putting a block, a wall between us and God. We have become enemies now. We don't want to talk with God. We don't want to walk with him. We don't want to do what God wants us to do. But when we respond to Christ, when we say yes to the gift that God has given to us, then we become friends. We are reconciled. God does not call us his enemy. The scripture says that he has called us his friends. So that's what salvation is. 
Now, the position of being in a far away from God has been changed into one of a friend. Now, that's what salvation is. We are now friends with God. The fourth word is propitiation. Propitiation. It basically means to appease. Okay? And in simple terms, it would mean to make a full payment of a debt that you owe. Now, we use the word appeasement when you're thinking about you know, appeasement of an angry person. And sometimes the non-Christian world uses the same word appeasement in their worship in terms of, oh, this is an angry God, God will get angry. So as a result, you make an offering so that the anger of God is appeased. Now, when you're thinking about the biblical understanding of propitiation, it is not that God is emotionally angry, but God is angry, yes. On what? On sin. Because God is a holy God, he cannot handle sin. That's why Jesus, when he was here on earth, when he saw them selling and uh, things in the temple, he was angry. Why? Because that's the nature of God. Nature of God is to be angry with sin. So when there is sin, anger is there. So that anger has to be appeased. Now Jesus stepped in and made full payment. So that the justice of God that demands that sin must be punished, that's what anger is, okay? The justice is there, punishment must be there. Somebody else stepped in, Jesus stepped in and says, I pay the price. And as a result, Jesus has become the propitiation, okay? He is not the propitiator. In other words, he is not the one, you know, who is making the sacrifice. He is the propitiation, huh? He has become the perfect sacrifice. The full payment has been done by Jesus himself. The stamp has been put on the bill to say paid in full. So God is happy. Now that is what propitiation is all about. Fifth word is remission. Remission. The word basically means sending away or sending back, you know or removing something, okay? And that's the understanding of remission. Now, how did this word come about? You know, in Leviticus chapter 16, in the Old Testament patterns, again, the high priest brought two goats to the tabernacle during the day of atonement. One goat was killed and its blood was sprinkled upon the mercy seat. And the other goat, what did they do? Aaron laid his hands on the head of the live goat and the People confessed their sins, and what happened? This goat then was sent away, sent away into the wilderness. It was like the sin of the people, you know, were put on that goat, and the goat was sent away, or it was removed. That is the understanding of remission, and that's what God has done for us. The scripture says that God has taken our sins and put them in the deeper sea. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. That's what remission is all about. So that we don't have to pay for that sin anymore. It has been removed. That is what remission is. That's what salvation is. Number six, the word redemption. The word redemption. In Revelation chapter 5 and verse 9, they sing a new song, which says, Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals, for you were slain and has redeemed us to God 
by your blood. Now, what is redemption? Redemption is basically to pay a price for something or someone. Now, that was, this is a slave terminology. A person who was a slave, and if a person says, hey, I want to redeem this person, what they would do is they would go to the marketplace, pay the price for that slave, and then buy that slave, full payment has been done, and then set that slave free. That is what redemption is, to pay a price. Jesus has removed us from the marketplace of slavery to sin by making us a full payment so that we are now free individuals. We were slaves to sin. Jesus paid the price, bought us to himself. Now we are set free not to be a slave to sin, but to live as free individuals. That's what redemption is. The seventh word is regeneration, regeneration. This basically means God doing his work in our lives so that there's a new birth. It's a process whereby God, through a second birth, imparts to the believing sinner a new nature. Classic example in the scriptures is where Jesus is speaking with Nicodemus. Where the Lord says, unless you are born again, unless you are regenerated, unless God does his new birthing process in you so that he puts his Holy Spirit into our hearts so that his nature now comes and dwells in us, unless this happens, we are not really saved. But when this happens, remember, just as much as a person is born physically into this world, and he's able to do the things that a physical person does. Similarly, when God does a spiritual birthing in us, he puts his life into our hearts, he puts his Holy Spirit into our lives, there's a change that comes about in us. We begin to change, we begin to think differently, talk differently, walk differently. Why? Because we are new beings now. That's what the Bible says, if any man is in Christ, regenerated in Christ, he's a new creature. The word that is used there is he's a new species. He's totally different. He has been regenerated. That is what salvation is. The eighth word is imputation. Imputation. Romans 4, 8 says, blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin. To impute is the act of one person, something good or bad, putting it to the account of another person. It's like one person's sin is swapped for righteousness and vice versa. He who knew no sin became sin for us, the Bible tells us, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. There's a swapping that takes place. God takes our sin upon himself, pays for our sin, and God who is holy, his holiness is now imputed to us, transferred to us. So when God looks at us, he doesn't look at us as sinful, he looks at us in Christ as righteous. That's what salvation is, imputation. Number nine, <coughs> adoption, adoption. Now, the word literally means the placing of a son, you know. Now, you must remember that adoption follows regeneration. It is only when a child is born that a child can be adopted, isn't it? 
So the new birth has to take place. Once it is done, then we recognize who we are. Now we belong to somebody else. We have a new nature, the new nature as a child of God. And now we have a position of being children of God. That's what John 1.12 tells us, isn't it? As many as received him, to them he gave the part to be called the sons of God. That's what salvation is. Now we are no longer sinners, sinners struggling with sin, caught up in sin. Now we have a new nature, you know, regenerated. It is his life living in us. And if it is life, his life living in us, then he says, now you are my son, you are my daughter. All that I have now belongs to you. And we recognize our genuine position. All this is salvation. We are adopted. Number 10 is the word justification. Justification. This is like a, a courtroom word, okay? Where a sinful man is standing in a courtroom, the judge is passing the verdict, you know, and judge says, you are just as if you have never sinned, okay? That's an explanation that somebody has given about this word justification, just as if you have never sinned. Now, how can we come to that place? You know? It is because of Christ, okay? When he declares the sinner to be no longer exposed to the penalty of sin, but restored to his favor. When God looks at us, we are in the courtroom, we are standing there, judgment has to be passed, okay? And Jesus steps in between the Father and us and say, hey, this person has accepted what I have done on the cross for him. And as a result, accept him, free him, no more penalty you know, to be paid. You know? He is acquitted, he is not judged, he is now clean. That is what justification is all about. So this is the act of God. God looks at us and says, you are clean. He has given us a clean slate. That is what salvation is. You may look into your life and say, it's so dirty. But God looks at your life and says, just as if we have never sinned, clean slate he has given you. That is what salvation is. Number 11 is sanctification. Is sanctification. Now, sanctification, justification removes the guilt and the penalty of sin, while sanctification checks the power and the growth of sin in our lives. Now remember, sanctification is not the removal of the sinful nature. Sinful nature is still there. Justification is what God has done for us. In the courtroom, he has said not guilty. Okay, But sanctification is what God continues to do in our lives daily, changing us more and more into his likeness and image. If justification was the means, sanctification is the end. Justification declares us as good. Sanctification makes us good, empowers us. It's an ongoing process that God does in our lives. And from justification, we move to sanctification, which is a present-day period. Then we move, number 12, to glorification, to glorification. This is the ultimate, the absolute physical, mental, and spiritual state of all believers. In the past, Jesus has saved us from the penalty of sin. We don't have to pay the penalty anymore. Right now, we are being saved. We are saved from the 
power of sin, sanctification, then one day we will be saved from the very presence of sin. That is what glorification is all about. In a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, the Bible tells us we shall all be changed. You know? As soon as Christ comes back or when we go to meet him when we die, we are changed into his likeness and image. New body, new spiritual body, a body like Christ's body, a body that cannot sin whatsoever. And number 13 is the word preserved. Assurance that God gives to us. Past, we don't have to pay for the penalty. Present, we are being saved from the power of sin, sanctification. Looking forward to that day when we will be glorified, when the presence of sin itself won't be there. But right now, what is God doing? He is preserving us. 1 Thessalonians 5, 23 and 24 says, And the very God of peace sanctify you wholly. And I pray, God, your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless until the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that's the assurance that God gives to us. If he has saved us by his precious blood, and now we have accepted him into our lives, and we say, yes, Lord, I need you. He has come into us, changed us inside out, given us a new nature, the nature of God, which gives us strength and power over sin in our lives. God also assures us, I started this new work now. I'm going to continue to do it. I'm going to preserve you till the very end, till the very end of your life, till the very end when you see Jesus face to face. Now, this is what salvation is all about. That we need to be so grateful to God for. We were sinking deep in sin. We could not get out of that well of sin. But Jesus stepped in and saved us. Not only has he saved us in the past, he's continuing to keep us going, continuing to preserve us. Let's recognize that since the sacrifice on the cross was a costly one, we would never treat the salvation that God offers to us cheaply, but we would be willing to give ourselves in full submission to him so that his power may be seen in and through our lives. Let's bow our heads in prayer together. Our Father, we thank you, Lord. So great a salvation, so great a salvation. And even as the writer to the Hebrew says, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Each one who hears my voice even this evening, that they would be able to understand how much it costs you to obtain our salvation. And that none of us will treat your salvation that you have given to us cheaply. But we'll be eternally grateful. And each day that we live our lives here, we would show that gratefulness, Lord, by being willing to submit ourselves to all that you want to do in and through our lives. Because as Paul mentions in Romans 12, is this too much to ask? When we think of all that you have done for us, is this too much to ask to give ourselves as a living sacrifice? Be with us this week and make this truth of salvation real in our lives, that our lives will show forth to everyone around us the work that you have done and are doing in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.